Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again and thank you for your patience while we had a little mid-season break. We're really glad that you're back with us for this week's episode. Shall we take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters? I think that would be wise. <laughs> uh, there's an awful <laughs> lot of you that have signed up over the past two weeks, so we're going to tag team on this, as the actress said to the bishop. So Crikey, we have... there's an offer. I know. We have Bina Khalid, who is currently binging her way through season six. Connie McFarlane, Donna Wainwright, Laura C, Laura Dos Santos, Hannah McKinnon, Jennifer Carses, Emma Pridmore, Donna Barnard, Charlotte Eddie Davis, Mick Currell, who I was chatting to on Patreon and who so eloquently told me to fuck off. Thank you for that. Kate McDonnell, Olivia Richardson, and I'll let you take over here, Betham. So we've also got massive thanks to say to Debs Allen, Chelsea Sell, Andy, Lauren Watchorn, Stephanie Fortune, Taylor, Marie Hoffman, Helen Hill, Abby Sandford, Angie and Heather, Jessica Lodge, M. Jones, Anishka Wojciech, so thank you for getting in touch with us about pronunciation, so thank you very much Anisha. Um, Sean Dooley, Holly Myers, Amy Callahan, Laura Wise, Chloe Carcombs, da- Dana Springer, I know you called you Donna, sorry Dana, Dana Springer, Becca Hilton, Lindsay, Marina, Fiona Swan, Freya Mowbray, Celia, Lydia Now, and Katie Pauza. And I think we missed one, Charlotte Jane as well. Oh gosh, sorry. Tut tut. Thank you to each and every one of you. As I said, so many of you have signed up over the past two weeks. We're super grateful for your support. It brings us one step closer to realising our dreams of doing this full time. So if you want to join these guys, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and there's a whole wealth of benefits available to you there. So we've got our fortnightly Patreon podcast, which is called Crime Wave, in which we discuss topical true crime stories making the news. We've got competitions, bonus episodes, all sorts of fun stuff. So do check it out. Patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Um, I also wanted to just give a shout out to Zoe Nixon, whose husband Nicholas got in touch to say that she is a massive fan of the show and he is too now as a result of of her uh, fandom on the show. Uh, So yeah, thank you, Zoe, and uh, a massive hello to you. And I think you guys, I think when I wrote your postcard, I'm pretty sure I put Nicholas and Zoe. I hope I did. I can't remember for definite, so I feel like I did um, because I was a bit unsure as to who had actually signed up. You know, when you're not, when it doesn't really tell you for definite on Patreon. So um, hopefully I I signed it to the both of you. Um, One final thing. Oh my gosh. One final thing, because we have been going on a little bit, haven't we, this morning? We have. Um, We want to say happy birthday. We don't do this very often. I think we'd be doing this quite, we'd do it every week if we could, um, but we'd hate to miss anybody out. But happy birthday, Sally from Instagram, because this episode is out on her birthday. So on the Wednesday that it comes out is her birthday. Happy birthday, Sally. Happy birthday, Sally. This episode has been researched and written by longtime listener of the show and Patreon supporter Chloe Walker and Chloe has done a fantastic job. She got in touch a while ago and said that she would love to write an episode and um, it's a fantastic episode so a huge well done and a massive thank you to Chloe. Uh, Yeah this has blown us both away. Yes thank you so much Chloe it's amazing and we can't wait to share it with you guys. 
So Chloe has started the episode with a disclaimer, so I'm going to read that. She says, listener discretion is advised. There will be details of child sexual abuse, paedophilia, rape and murder and content that listeners may find distressing. And I think that just really sets the tone for this episode. We are going to be taking a deep dive into the life and crimes of notorious child killer Robert Black, who was convicted in May 1994 of the kidnapping, rape and murder of four girls aged between five and eleven. And I'm going to take you back to the very beginning, but before we go any further, let's take a moment to hear from this week's show sponsor. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We talked a little while ago about how much time we spend on ourselves in a given week versus how much time we spend on other people. And this really made me think of you, Bethan, because you have a family of your own and a big extended family, lots of friends, and you're an amazing friend. But with that comes a lot of demands from other people on your time. It is a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because it's not something that I don't want to still do. I still want to make that time for people. But I I don't know, it is really tricky because I find myself trying to do things before work if I need to drop something to somewhere or get something. And actually, that's probably not a great idea because it means I'm leaving the house even earlier than I would normally and that side of things. But equally, it means I've got the whole evening then with my girls when I get in from work. So it's it's finding a balance, isn't it? And it's making choices that even if it means, oh, well, I have to get up a bit earlier, I'd rather that. So yeah, it's it's all about balance, isn't it? I think it's really hard. But also, making time for yourself is just so important. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but mums, I feel like, don't make enough time for ourselves. I feel like it's really easy not to. And a lot of my mum friends I talk to will say things like, oh, I went to the supermarket all by myself, as if that's like a treat. A treat, yeah. I know, isn't it bonkers? So... It is, and it is easy to get burned out, isn't it? If you if you don't make time for yourself and you don't get that balance right, yeah, totally. When when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us stretched thin, and you're right, it can leave us burned out. And I think uh, you guys know that I've been seeing a therapist for a couple of years now, and she's definitely helped me to value my time more. And one Good. thing I've been work, yeah, one thing I've been working on over the past couple of months is to take time for myself each day to meditate, and it's really hard for me to do that. I found it really hard to push myself to have that time, but I've persevered and given myself that time, and actually, it makes me feel like I have more capacity to then be there for other people as a result of that. I'm really glad because we've said before, haven't we? It's that oxygen mask analogy. It's yeah. you have to put your own oxygen mask on in a plane if the plane's going down before you can help anyone else. Because if you don't help yourself first, you're no use to anybody and you can't support anyone else. So I'm really glad that you, you kind of persevered through that and you do give yourself that time every day. Yeah, and it, I think that analogy sums it up perfectly, doesn't it? So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, remember it doesn't have to be a reactive step. It can absolutely be proactive and a way of really connecting with yourself. So give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, really convenient. And to get started, you just fill in a questionnaire and they then match you with your own licensed therapist. So find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash red today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash red.
R-E-D. R-E-D. <laughs> we haven't said that for ages. Oh, okay. we haven't. It's the only we bit haven't. of lightheartedness in this entire episode, I'm pretty we have sure. To, we have to spell help because I think people could easily misinterpret that as health and it's help. Well, we so. did, didn't we? When they were first our sponsor, we kept on accidentally saying health and we'd have to re-record so many times because I'd be like, Mark, it's help. Stop saying yeah. health. And you'd be like, Bethan, you just said health. So but I, think some I understand people... that bit. I just think some some of our listeners think, why are you spelling out such a simple word, help? We know how it's spelled. Um, they so I always think it's just... actually me kind of going, someone help me. I'm on <laughs> yeah. a show with Mark. <laughs> yeah, H-E-L-P, this is a coded message, a really clever yeah. one. Um, right, I, I, people love these long introductions. So I'm oh, sure don't we'll get they lots just? Of, I'm sure we're going to get some lovely comments about how long this has been going feedback. on for. Yeah, mm. uh, so let's dive straight in. Robert Black was born out of wedlock in April 1947 to mum Jessie, and his early years were somewhat turbulent. The plan was for Robert to be adopted at birth, but for reasons unknown, this never happened. Instead, he was fostered by a couple called Jack and Margaret Tulip. We don't know much about Robert's relationship with his foster parents, but it has been alleged that Margaret in particular was quite violent towards him. And it's also been said that she would punish Robert for his chronic bedwetting and also for his poor hygiene. And neighbours at the time recall regularly seeing Robert with visible bruising to his face, arms and legs, which of course does allude to abuse, although I know children quite often have bruises. There's, you can see the difference, can't you? Like, there is a difference, My yeah. My eldest recently smashed her face into a carpet and she had a oh, big no. graze and she's then also stacked it and grazed her knees. But you can tell that their childhood just like mistakes and messing around and in general, she's then also very happy. And she'll also tell people, like, look what I did. I was doing this and I fell over and I got a plaster on my leg. And you can tell the difference, can't you, when there's a child that actually you can see that the bruises aren't or the grazes aren't what just normal childhood playing around. Yeah, and, and I think the telltale sign was that when he was questioned about this bruising, he would deny any kind of abuse was taking place, but he wouldn't really provide a satisfactory explanation mm. as to how he'd got those bruises so I think that was was key to it. I feel so sorry for him because you know bedwetting and stuff like that is not something he could have controlled and his poor hygiene well actually if you're his parents you know not biological parents but you're the parents bringing him up you should be taking that on as a teaching thing not just punishing him for not yeah. being very hygienic like how does he know what to do unless you've taught him that's just horrible. And the chronic bedwetting could have been as a result of, not always the case at all, but of some kind of trauma. It could have been symptomatic of the abuse that he was enduring at the well, hands yeah, of Margaret. exactly. So it's probably her fault, bitch. Um, mm -hmm. So having been placed with the tulips at just six months old, they were mum and dad to Robert. They were the only parents he ever knew. So if he was being abused, I think it's probably safe to assume that he wouldn't have known any different. Yeah, oh, that's just horrible. I know, obviously, what he goes on to do, and I don't want to have sympathy for someone like him, but that just makes me feel really sad. And I I do sometimes wonder, it's that whole nature versus nurture thing, isn't it? Would yeah. he have gone on to be the person he became had he been placed with a, a loving, how he like healthy family dynamic? Yeah, I think this provides a lot of context. And mm. actually, when, when he was just five years old, his foster dad, Jack, passed away. 
And then six years after that, at the age of 11, so too did his foster mum, Margaret. So at 11 Mm. years old, he was now an orphan. And that would have had a, a huge impact on him as well, because he went on to be placed in a number of care homes, which I'll go on to discuss in a moment. It's said that in school, Robert was profusely bullied, acquiring the nickname Smelly Bobby Tulip from classmates. In, <laughs> I really shouldn't be laughing at that because I don't want to think of any child being bullied. Um, this At this point, Bethan, this is where I thought, have we covered this case before? Because I remember that Smelly Bobby Tulip. I remember you saying that at some point, but we've not covered it, have we? I don't think I... I think you're thinking of somebody else. I think so, yeah. Um, There was another... What was the other case? There was a case, though, where the nickname was just ridiculous and a bit silly. But that it it's, la- it's kind of one that makes you laugh as a grown adult because if someone turned to me and was like, oh, smelly Beth and Truman, I'd be like, all right, okay. Like, I, I don't smell, but fine. Like, you're being weird. Or like, do you know what I mean? Like, it just wouldn't... Yeah. But when you're in a classroom situation as a child and that's consistently what you're hearing and everybody says it, I imagine it was like one of those, you know, people would whisper it as you walked past or like even shout it as you walked out. Like, it is funny, isn't it? Like, it's a funny phrase, it Smelly is, Bobby yeah. Tulip. It kind of rolls off the tongue, but it's really horrible. It and is he probably horrible. did stink as well. Like, that's the worst bit is it's probably true because if his mum's already, you know, his foster mum had already not, taught him about hygiene and had beaten him about that and he had issues like oh it's making me really feel sorry for him him up but I will find out what episode it was and I will remind you because it was definitely a case of mine where there was like a slightly humorous nickname that the person kind of took on and Mm. made their own I think it was or something like that um whereas here I can see the next line he then tried to take back control by using violence to target the younger children and it just that's yeah I think that's so we've seen that so many times and it's so typical isn't it yeah it is um despite me laughing it is just because it rolls off the tongue and it is quite funny but it is not funny that he was bullied mercilessly at school it's really sad so regardless of what he goes on to do um that is awful and you don't want to think of any child being bullied and I think you're right he would have smelled and Again, that's symptomatic of the lack of care and um, nurturing at, at home, which is, is also really sad. It's unclear from research if Robert's foster parents sexually abused him, but it is evident that he was subjected to physical, emotional and psychological abuse from a very young age. After his foster parents' death, Robert was placed into a children's home in Falkirk in Scotland, and it was here that things went from bad to considerably worse. In later confessions to a sex therapist named Ray Wire, Robert explained how his depraved lust for young girls' genitalia became obsessional. He talked of manipulating a girl aged five into showing him her genitalia when he was just a boy himself, and it's believed that this fueled his vulgar compulsions. The pivotal point came in 1958, when at the age of 11, now orphaned, Robert committed his first known serious sex crime. And he basically he dragged a young girl into a public toilet and started to abuse her. And having been placed in a mixed sex children's home initially, after this assault, Robert was moved to a high discipline children's home for boys. And that was called Red House Care Home. And he was known there as Child 28. So I think that tells you all you need to know about the level of care 
that was provided Mm. to these children. For a period spanning three years, Robert was sexually abused by various members of male staff working at the children's home. That makes me just so angry. Oh, massively, yeah. Like, I, I understand, like, that's obviously it's why it's more prevalent in places like that, especially at these times, because these people had victims that they could get to easily and that would be why they would choose these places but equally this i mean it's it's clearly not it's a horrendous children's home and being called child 28 is just disgraceful but that should be your home like it shouldn't be a hunting ground for pedophile like, I, no. I, I don't know and what i'm was. trying to say because it just makes me so angry because obviously it's bad anywhere and any time but the fact that these homes so often were staffed by people who wanted to take advantage in such a horrific way, it's just, it just, yeah, it makes me think of Jimmy Savile, all of those yep, sorts of yep. cases that we've talked about before. And, and I think it is worse because these are really, really vulnerable children and quite often they're naughty children. So when they rarely spoke up and talked about the abuse that they were suffering from, they weren't believed because they were just deemed to be troublemakers. So they were targeted. And there's lots of rumours about high-profile people that targeted children in homes and took them out for the day and abused them. Some of those people, like Jimmy Savile, we know about. Other people, I won't name them, but uh, some of our listeners will probably know who I'm talking about. We've talked about it privately, Beth, and I, I don't think you believe it or you don't want to, certainly. No, but, but yeah, there are. I don't want to believe it. I think there are and were high-profile people that deliberately targeted children's homes. I think it happened a hell of a lot. So Robert Black eventually left Red House and went on to bounce around a number of children's homes before finally landing in Greenock in Scotland, where he got his first job as a butcher's delivery boy. Robert would later boast of interfering with over 40 girls whilst delivering meat to the local community. However, we only have his word for this because none of those girls came forward and reported it to the police, understandably. But yeah, that that job gave him ready access within that community and allegedly he abused over 40 girls during the course of his day job there. At the age of 17, some sources say he was 16, Robert Black perpetrated any parent's worst nightmare. Using his softly spoken voice and his childlike charm, he lured a seven-year-old girl from a park into an old air raid shelter on the pretense of seeing some kittens. When the girl followed him into the building, he proceeded to hold her by the throat until she became unconscious. While the girl lay unconscious, he removed her underwear and pulled her legs apart and then proceeded to masturbate over her as she lay limp and unconscious. And at at this point, yeah, it's horrific. At this point, Chloe does say that there are more details that she's purposely left out. And I do appreciate this is graphic, but I think it's important for us to go into some detail in order to establish the disturbed, broken mind of this man, Robert Black. After he had finished his assault on the girl, Robert left her there, on her own, not knowing if she was alive or dead, and seemingly not giving a flying fuck. The girl eventually woke in that abandoned air raid shelter, and was later seen wandering around, crying and looking confused. Unfortunately, she got the help that she needed, and this must have been reported to the police, because the next day, Robert Black was arrested and charged with lewd and libidinous behaviour a crime in which a perpetrator participates in an unlawful and offensive sexual act against a child under the age of 14 for boys and 12 for girls. 
After undergoing a psychiatric evaluation, it was concluded that this offence was to be admonished, the lowest form of penalty under Scottish law, and Chloe says a giant fuck you to the victim and her parents. This crime was added to Robert Black's criminal history and he swiftly moved on to the next part in his life, unscathed by this loose punishment. And Chloe writes here that this is infuriating really, the most frustrating part of the story, because had Robert been reprimanded properly for this, or perhaps maybe if a second psychological report or opinion had been obtained, maybe lives would have been saved in the future. Because yeah, from here on in, it gets a whole lot worse and Robert Black's descent into depravity now accelerates at pace. In the months following this incident, Robert found himself lodgings and employment. He was working at a builder's merchant and began dating his first and only girlfriend. The couple dated for just a few months, however this relationship was short-lived and ended partly due to Robert Black's unusual sexual demands. Shortly after his relationship breakdown, he was evicted from his rented room when his landlord suspected him of sexually assaulting his nine-year-old granddaughter. This incident was not reported to the police, so there isn't much evidence for us to go on, but based on Robert's background and early crimes, Chloe says that she absolutely believes that did happen, and and so too do I. Now, they say things come in threes, and they certainly did for Robert around this time, because not only did he lose his girlfriend and his home, he also lost his job. So he decided to start again and took up lodgings with another couple. Twelve months on and Robert would find himself in front of a jury pleading guilty to three counts of indecent assault against a child after his landlord had informed the police that he was molesting their six-year-old daughter. So there's really a pattern here, isn't there? And this man absolutely is already showing that he cannot be trusted around any children. Unlike his first conviction, Robert was given a 12-month prison sentence this time and sent to Polmont Borstal. After serving his sentence, Robert moved to London, where he once again found himself accused of sexually assaulting a child, probably another unfortunate landlord's daughter or granddaughter. But sadly, nothing was reported to the police and Robert got away with it. And this perhaps played a part in fueling his sexual obsession with children because he is acting largely with impunity at this point. Shortly after moving to London, Robert Black began to frequent a sex shop in King's Cross. On initially visiting the sex shop, he took the opportunity to ask the shop owner if he had any, quote, teenage porn. Horrifyingly, the shopkeeper pulled out a magazine called Lollitots, which featured explicit photographs of child sexual abuse. And Robert Black's insatiable lust for this kind of, I hate to use the word pornography, this kind of imagery of child sexual abuse soon progressed from magazines to videos. And adding to his growing collection of grotesque and harmful material, he soon began producing his own and photographing children himself. And this would have been in the 70s, very late 70s, so probably armed with a Polaroid camera and abusing children and photographing them and fortunately before the advent of camcorders, because, you know, he would have been really harmful with a, a camcorder. There's there's nothing more worrying than a paedophile armed with a camcorder, in my experience. God, it's just the idea that the even the shopkeeper's just like, yep. Yeah. Got what you need. Like, it's just, it's bad enough that it's being done and it's bad enough that it's being created for people but that's just that's a sex shop like it's the 
I, it's a seedy shop. It's not like he's gone into his local Asda or Tesco or something. I, I appreciate that. But, oh, God, like there's just so many layers to what's wrong with that whole scenario. And and I think his move to London was really deliberate at this point because he'd almost exhausted where he lived in Scotland. He'd perhaps built yeah. a bit of this reputation around what he'd been up to and he needed to move anyway. But central London at that time was, was a really seedy place to be. It's not like the glamorous, expensive central London we know now. So it was a really seedy place and that there would have absolutely been ready availability to that kind of material and to vulnerable children, more vulnerable children for him to abuse. I think as well that it's that's more populated as well and there's a lot more anonymity. So you know that you're going to go somewhere that you haven't grown up and everyone already knew you. It's quite transient in a lot of places. So yeah, it's a very calculated move there. Yeah, he, he would have absolutely been able to hide in plain sight there. So Robert Black's violence and compulsion only grew from here and at the start of the 1980s things were about to get a whole lot worse. On the 12th of August in 1981, nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi's lifeless body was discovered in a reservoir by two anglers not far from a lay-by frequently used by long-haul lorry drivers. Post-mortem examinations revealed that the girl had died from drowning and had likely undergone some form of ligature strangulation. A pathologist concluded that there had been evidence of sexual assault found in the victim's underwear and also on her body. Jennifer's bicycle had been found less than a mile from her home and it was apparent that she had been abducted and then brutally murdered. Jennifer was described by her mum Patricia as a clear-headed girl just full of fun. The Cardis were determined not to let this break them as a family and Jennifer's dad later commented to the media saying, This man, who was incredibly evil, we had to forgive him. We didn't condone him, but we had to forgive him. And Chloe says at this point, as a parent and a long-time listener of True Crime Podcasts, I cannot begin to imagine the immense pain and suffering this family had to endure and how you gain the unmeasurable strength to forgive your child's murderer. But, she goes on to say, this just shows the true nature and strength of this family and how beautiful and compassionate they are. And I completely agree. I thought Chloe just said that so beautifully Mm. and we have seen it before where parents of a murdered child do find a way to forgive and yeah I you can't say what you would do unless you were ever in that horrific situation but yeah I just it's so admirable I think to be able to do that in that situation really incredible so just as a side note of course Robert Black was responsible for Jennifer Cardi's abduction and murder And he didn't get caught for this crime for some time, as we'll go on to find out now. Susan Maxwell went missing around a year later, on the 30th of July 1982, when she was just 11 years old. A friend of Susan's recalled that she saw her walking home by herself half a mile from a family home, something that she hadn't done before and wasn't known to do before this day. When Susan didn't return after her tennis game in the area of Coldstream, concerns started to grow for her family. And this is the first time Susan was allowed to walk home alone and this happened. She was abducted. Oh, and, you gosh, know, it's, that's so sad. Can the you imagine time. the torment that her parents would have faced as mm. a result of that? The following day, a search was mounted and 300 police officers hunted for Susan Maxwell, 
and every property in Coldstream and the neighbouring Cornhill was searched. But for days, officers just drew a blank, and Susan's desperate family feared the worst. Sadly, their fears were realised when, on the 12th of August, Susan's body was found. She was discovered 264 miles from her home, dumped in a rubbish tip. A coroner's inquest was held and found that Susan had been bound and gagged before being sexually assaulted. The exact date and time of her death remains unknown due to the rate of decomposition, so of course it is possible that she was held captive for a number of days, being abused before then being killed. And Susan's parents described Robert as evil through and through. Her dad wrote, She was happy and giggly and waved her racket as she left. It was the last time we saw her, alive or dead. Furthermore, he added, 14 days later, her body was found on a rubbish dump near Utoxeter in Staffordshire. Heat, rodents and insects meant it was recognisable only by dental records. Of the many things that I hate black for, throwing Susan's body into a dump like a bin bag is near the top of the list. Mm. And yeah, that was something that really got to me. Do you know what? Like her poor dad, to even have to say something like that, let alone feel it. And I got the impression from what he wrote years later about his daughter's murder. I got the impression that he would have wanted to have seen her actually, uh, her body, Perhaps, because some people do, don't they? That's quite normal in lots of cultures and that's quite normal for lots of people that that they do need to do that. They need to know that this Mm -hmm. is true and that's the only way they'll 100% believe it and be able to kind of process it and get some sort of closure. Um, And and that's the impression I got. And he was deprived of that because she was so badly decayed uh, that it wouldn't have resembled Mm. his daughter and he he, he wouldn't have been allowed to view her. They wouldn't have let him see her. No. So he was deprived of that as well. But yeah, she was just tossed into that rubbish dump as as if she was rubbish and just such an undignified end. And she would have undergone, you know, absolute torture in the hours or even days before she was flung there. Robert Black's killing spree didn't end with Susan. Five-year-old Caroline Hogg from the picturesque seaside town of Portobello, just outside of Edinburgh, went missing on the 18th of July in 1983, so another year later, when playing on the promenade. Witness statements from some of the children known to play on the promenade describe seeing a scruffy man that needed a shave. At the time of Caroline's disappearance, a search for the five-year-old was the largest Scotland had ever seen, with over 2,000 volunteers and 50 Royal Scots Fusiliers engaged in the search for this missing child. The story made headlines all over the UK, with the whole nation captivated by yet another child that had gone missing within the space of a year. A 14-year-old girl came forward and recalled the moment she overheard Caroline say, Yes, please, to a man who had gone on to watch her ride the carousel. The girl said she saw the pair leaving the area at around 7.30, with Caroline looking frightened. And just remember, she's five years old. She This is the 80s, oh the my, early 80s. Yeah. Pedophiles didn't exist then, apparently. Yeah, she's been told to do something by an adult and she's she's doing it. So he's probably paid for her to have a go on the carousel and then manipulated her into going off with him. And even at five years old, she, she and this is an adult, and but even at five years old, I think she must have realised this isn't right. And I think that's why she looked frightened, but she was ju- just doing as an adult had told her. Sadly, 10 days after her disappearance, Caroline's body was found 300 miles from her home, naked in a ditch. 
Often serial killers display patterns of behaviour and we can see here that Robert Black's long distance driving job, a job he was doing at the time, was able to give him the freedom to pursue these atrocities all over the country. And again you see this with, with other serial killers. They have these jobs that do make it easier to carry out these crimes and make it harder mm. for the police to connect them. The cause of Caroline's death was unknown due to the rate of decomposition of her tiny body, but her murder was thought to be sexually motivated as she was found without her clothes on. The links were starting to present themselves now. Caroline's dad John revealed in a television interview that his daughter and Susan Maxwell were just two youngsters that never did anybody any harm with everything to live for. We see often with these types of killers that they have a signature both of these crimes, so that of Susan Maxwell's and Carolyn Hogg's, they they were sexually motivated and both victims were young, helpless girls. And Robert Black found his niche in their vulnerability and used this to fulfil his deplorable desires. The police were intent on finding the perpetrator of these horrific crimes. They quickly established a link, as I said, between the murders of Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg uh, there were several evidential links between both murders. So both girls were wearing white ankle socks. Both had been bound and killed and then dumped miles away from where they lived. And the police concluded that the perpetrator was likely a lorry driver or a van driver. And they were right, obviously, and they set about pursuing that line of inquiry. The police were positive that crucial information could be obtained in the hunt for the person responsible, but they really struggled to manage all of the evidence that they collated in the course of their investigation. They were using index cards at the time. They were widely used in, in the early 80s, but they proved to be problematic in many cases because the evidence was lost quite easily. It would get tangled up and just missed, really. Uh, this was obviously before computers were everywhere. It's incredible, isn't it, when you think it wasn't that long ago, really? Yeah. And how far we've come now. And my co-author and our friend Chris Clark, who is retired from the police, he's got some amazing stories to tell of working because he's, he's a retired in intelligence officer. And so one of his jobs was, you know, collating all of this information gathering information and trying to pull apart all these random facts that are all just jumbled and make information from it and and get the clues and the links and everything it's just amazing it's it's good old-fashioned proper policing and I'm just glad that now we do have other tools to support but it does we've talked before haven't we about how sometimes it can feel like Nowadays, you have to have DNA evidence or you have to have something concrete, whereas it's not so much on the gut instinct anymore. No, no. And I suppose that's all, what automation does. It sort of takes away that human element, which is, yeah, gut instinct, sixth sense, kind of using your experience in that role to, yeah, sort of find patterns and predict behaviour. Yeah, and we talked to Colin Sutton about it as well, didn't we, when he joined us for Book Club, about how... Oh, you name dropper. Oh, a name dropper, my bestie. Um, But I just, I love him. And he talked about how you, you just have to sometimes do that, like, old, good old-fashioned hard work and just 
get boots on the ground and look at people and do all these things. You have to look with fresh eyes. And And he talked about how labour intensive it was and how boring some of it is. But with yeah. persistence, it pays off. Um, I loved how Colin Sutton, he, he's come to two of our Patreon book clubs. He's absolutely brilliant guy so interesting to talk to we read two of his books and reviewed them they were brilliant and um, I love how he just rocks up with a pint of beer (laughs) to book club yeah (laughs) Um, yeah he's absolute legend we love him so this task force went on to pioneer the use of a computer system to tackle serious crimes and that's called the Holmes database I can't remember what it stands for um, but it's a much better and faster way of documenting evidence and then, of course, linking information. And yeah, I think Colin talked quite a lot about the Holmes database because he saw that for real when it was introduced and, and the benefits that came from it. I'm going to have to just check what it what it stands for, because I remember we talked about this before in one of my episodes, because I do love to look at the the older cases and history and stuff. And I'm just the Home Office Large Major Inquiry System. There you go. I there was like, I knew, I know that we've talked about what it is, but I couldn't remember what it was either. So, and I love nice that to, it's nice to I have the little that, fact. <laughs> and I love that it's a bit of an homage to Sherlock Holmes as well. Exactly. Yeah. Only in this country would we do that. I love it. So we're going to fast forward to January 1987 now. All of the evidence, witness statements and pieces of relevant information relating to the murders of Susan and Caroline at this stage were all in one place. All of the index cards had been collated and then manually inputted onto this new fancy database, which Chloe says had cost a quarter of a million pounds to implement. However, there was still a tremendous amount of work to be done and this, of course, isn't the end. Despite the incredible work of the police, there was still no suspect to pinpoint these crimes on. The widespread publicity of Caroline's case did appear to stop Robert Black in his tracks, however, but only for a short period. On the 26th of March in 1986, at 7.30 in the evening, a 10-year-old girl called Sarah Harper disappeared 100 metres from her home in Leeds. She was visiting her local corner shop to buy a loaf of bread, and the shopkeeper witnessed what she described as a balding man entering the shop shortly after Sarah, and then leaving just after the unsuspecting Sarah had paid for her things, so very much targeting her, following her out. The last people believed to have seen her alive were two teenagers who said they saw Sarah walking into an alleyway not far from her home, and that was an alleyway that was often used by locals as a shortcut. When Sarah didn't return home, her mum Jackie immediately informed the police and a search was promptly arranged with over a 100 officers assigned to look for the girl. An underwater search team was deployed into a nearby reservoir and 200 volunteers swept across the local area in a desperate attempt to locate the missing child. The police were able to secure 1,400 witness statements and a witness described seeing a white transit van in the area at the time of Sarah's disappearance. Sarah's desperate mother Jackie made a direct appeal to her daughter's abductor, saying to the waiting media, I just want her back, even if she's dead, if someone would just pick up the phone and tell us where the body is. How sad that she was resigned to the inevitable fact that her daughter had been murdered. Yeah. Very sadly, Sarah's body was found a month after she disappeared on the 19th of April. She'd been bound, gagged and she was partially dressed and she was found floating in the River Trent, 71 miles from her home. The injuries reviewed by a pathologist suggested that Sarah had been a victim of a violent assault which resulted in internal damage and damage to her face, head and neck. 
The cause of death was drowning. Very tragically, Sarah was believed to still be alive up to eight hours after she was abducted, leading examiners to believe that she endured a prolonged and vicious attack. And that's, her parents have got to live with that, that there were a number of hours where she was subjected to a vicious attack that had caused internal injuries. She was then lightly strangled and then, you know, half strangled. She wasn't even killed from that and landed up in in a river, you know, um, and drowned. It's just, you can't comprehend that. It would appear that the three years Robert Black went without killing was sadly unleashed on this innocent child. Although criminologists believe that the style of murders and assaults that Robert Black perpetrated meant it was highly probable that actually he hadn't stopped for that three-year period between 83 and 86, and actually he was probably responsible for other abductions and possible murders, which would make sense. He can't, he can't have been able to stop. That would have been a compulsion that he wasn't able to control. He wasn't in prison at that time, so I don't believe mm. that three years went by without him carrying out an attack. Nope. Going back to Sarah's murder, a further witness came forward with information relating to the same van seen in the Morley area of Leeds when the young girl went missing. The police believed that the van that had been seen in Morley and the van that had been seen by the other witness travelled on the M1. Officers were deployed to interview service station staff and motorists and one member of staff at a service station reported seeing a white van that looked out of place but couldn't give a definitive description of the man driving it. Initially the police didn't consider the case to be linked to that of Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell but they didn't rule that out completely. They knew that Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell's murders were linked but this one they weren't so sure and the first murder they weren't so sure. I think it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because you can't say for definite whether or not they're linked, I suppose. You can't rule it out, but you can't say for definite. So Yeah. And sometimes when the police keeping an open mind. Yeah, it's important. And sometimes when the police do publicly link murders, that can then close off other avenues of inquiry and it can stop important witnesses coming forward because they kind of think, Well, I must be wrong because the police think that it's related to that crime. So they are usually quite cagey with it as well but that it's Mm. there in their mind that, yes, this could be linked. Despite the innovation of modern computer systems, the police were still at a loss at this point. A further two police forces joined in on the national manhunt for this depraved child murderer. This was a costly and complex case that had so far not revealed a single suspect. In April 1986, a meeting was held between all of the forces involved in the case, and the outcome of this meeting was unknowingly, at the time, going to yield a turning point in the investigation, because authorities contacted the FBI and requested that a psychological profile be done on the evidence of the three murders. It would take two long years before the FBI completed this profile, though, but it would prove to be pivotal. The FBI profile suggested that the killer was a white male aged between 30 and 40, a classic loner with an unkempt appearance. The killer likely had less than 12 years of formal education. He probably lived alone in a lower middle class area. The murders were likely sexually motivated and the perpetrator was likely to have kept trophies of his victims. The profile also alluded to an obsession with child pornography and hinted at necrophilia. 
We know that Robert Black's warped sexual interest in young girls presented at a very young age, and based on the evidence we've accumulated over the years, children that convey this behaviour in early childhood often go on to commit violent and sexually motivated crimes in their teenage and adult lives. Additionally, maltreatment of children almost doubles the probability that they will go on to commit crimes in later life. It's directly linked to early developmental issues, which we know Robert Black was subjected to when he was placed into the care of his foster parents. In no way are his actions justifiable, but they are understandable, Chloe says. It still doesn't ease the pain of knowing what happened to these poor children, though. And Chloe says at this point, some details have been left out of this case intentionally. However, this isn't just another case of a paedophile murdering children. She says, it is one of the worst cases I have spent this much time researching and writing about. Robert Black was a self-confessed prolific child abuser with a demoralising outlook on his victims' lives. He was a narcissist that admits later on that he didn't think about how his victims must have been feeling at the time. His victims were just playthings that he could experiment upon and then dispose of them when he'd had his fill of fun. We know that narcissists do not experience empathy, and this was a superpower for Robert Black. Throughout interviews, Black claimed that he didn't want to hurt children, and said this is why he would strangle them first, before raping them. Oh my god, like as if that's some sort of like... It's bizarre, because obviously to him it is, it's like, oh, well I care for them, I don't want them to be in pain... The but fuck? I, but I, I do think that also does hint at necrophilia. I do think that's at play here. I think it wasn't just mm-hmm. about in his warped mind, I can prevent them from realising they're being raped by killing them first or making them unconscious. I think he got off on, on that. And this level of disassociation shows just how predatory and dangerous he was. He was kind of deluded and he thought, yeah, that these children weren't harmed. The act of strangulation is one of control and power over victims, as we know, and these victims were young girls, and he made sure he always had the upper hand when committing these offences. It's clear that Black almost believes that he is somehow not entirely responsible for his actions when he draws attention back to how he was treated as a child, which he did a lot in police interviews, and that is unfortunate what happened to him as a child. However, that does not excuse subjecting other children to harm and violence. But I do think it's important to provide the context of that. Yeah, and we've talked about this a number of times, haven't we? How what you decide to then go ahead and do with the experiences you have behind you, that's that's up to you. If you're brought up in a family where your parents are alcoholics, do you decide to go down the same path or do you decide to not drink? Like it's it's not obviously as easy as someone else's decisions, but you do make the choice of where your life's going to go. And yes, what he was subjected to was horrendous. And we talked right at the beginning, didn't we, about having that sympathy for him. And could things have been different if his formative years had been the opposite? But equally, there are people who are sexually abused as children who do not go on to abuse. Yeah, the majority so wouldn't go on to abuse. Yeah. The majority wouldn't, exactly. I um, It doesn't have to be inevitable that history repeats, not with necessarily, you know, I'm not talking about one specific thing, but anything, addiction, Agreed, sexual yeah. abuse, doesn't it have doesn't to have to be inevitable. So, yeah, there is some context here, but yeah, it doesn't explain away what he did and it doesn't provide an excuse. 
14-year-old Theresa Thornhill was the victim of an attempted abduction in the Notting Hill area of Radford in April in 1988. Thankfully, Robert Black had not managed to apprehend her and she managed to wrestle her way out of his tight grasp. So, time was ticking for him now in the late 80s. He, He didn't have long to go before the police caught up with him, but he was still out there. Another witness of this attempted abduction told his parents what happened that day and they immediately reported the incident to the police. Both witnesses described the man as balding and unkempt, overweight and between 40 and 50 years of age. We fast forward to 1990 now, the year in which Robert Black would finally meet his demise. On the 14th of July 1990, a retired postmaster was mowing his lawn. He bent down towards the ground to empty his grass clippings when something grabbed his attention. He saw what he believed to be the legs of a girl being lifted in the air. He straightened his posture to see something being stuffed into a blue transit van and a man quickly entering the driver's side before starting the engine and driving off. David's instinct led him to believe that he had just witnessed a kidnapping and he telephoned the police immediately. Shortly after police arrived on the scene and miraculously, the van David reported came back down the street and police officers apprehended the vehicle and its driver and it was Robert Black they swiftly arrested him. The officer on duty discovered movement in a sleeping bag in the back of the van and to their horror the girl had been bound by her wrists and ankles and a pillowcase had been used as a hood to cover her head. And this is so shocking the next bit because the officer who had apprehended Robert Black in his van with this woman, this girl in the back, began to remove the hood from the girl's head and discovered to his absolute horror that this girl was actually his own daughter. Can you believe oh that? Oh my, yeah, honestly, can you Can you? Imagine? I was so shocked, I was so shocked. Yeah. And, and she was alive and saved, but she, she was split second from being killed. If David, the witness who was cutting his grass, hadn't seen that or hadn't reported it straight away, then she would have been murdered. And... I know, and... You know, it's just... It's, it's, I'd forgotten about that, the fact that he then was like let's rescue this child oh shit this is my child like yeah i've completely forgotten that i mean what a head fuck you just wouldn't be able to get it's mind bending you wouldn't be able to get your head around that um very sadly although the victim w- was alive a doctor did ascertain that she'd been sexually assaulted uh, the victim was able to recollect a lay-by in which the assault had occurred and Black was held until his trial in August 1990, where he kind of had no choice with this but to plead guilty to this abduction. Uh, and with evidence of Black's crimes mounting against him, he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison for this specific crime and deemed an extreme danger to children. And a doctor concluded that if the victim had been held any longer, she would have died from suffocation. So at this point, he's been apprehended, but they've not linked any other crimes to him. But but this one, but it is really, the case is really mounting against him now. It is now only a matter of time before justice catches up with him. And I don't know, um, I'm not sure whether or not we'll go into it in this episode. I don't think that we will because there's lots of other potential abductions and um attempted and that sort of thing but chris's wife was one of robert black's intended victims and she had a really lucky escape and he talks about that in his book um she she was nearly abducted by him and yeah like 
it's just great. There's so many almosts with this case. Yeah. I think with a lot of cases, with any serial offender, there will be. And we've talked about the being close to or not realising how close you are to something before. Yeah. Um, but there's so many and there's there's always going to be some sort of link with an area that we know or a person that potentially you know. It's, it's really, really crazy. But for this, I mean, that police officer is just the the craziest one, isn't it, to realise it's your daughter, but yeah. Yeah, it's um it's weird to think there are women out there alive today that are absolutely could have nearly been a victim of Robert Black's. There'll be women walking the streets alive today, out there living their lives that don't even know that they could have been a victim, that he might have driven past and seen them and thought, I'm gonna you know, I'm going to get them and then didn't for whatever reason. And that that is, we do find that absolutely fascinating, don't we? So the police did quickly ascertain that Robert Black was responsible for the murders of Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg and Sarah Harper. And they had a mammoth amount of circumstantial evidence against him, in particular evidence that placed him in the same areas when the girls went missing. Detectives used good old policing work to trawl through thousands of fuel station receipts and they were able to form a timeline of Black's whereabouts throughout the 80s. And that would have just been a huge amount of work. And in fact, this whole investigation was said to have cost the taxpayer £12 million. And I can understand why. By December 1990, witness statements had been gathered and a strong case had been made which firmly pinned the blame for the three murders on Robert Black. Historic delivery records were obtained which added weight to the case against Black and detectives believed that they had enough circumstantial evidence to bring the case against him to trial and all of this evidence was submitted to the Crown Prosecution Service in May 1991 and then in March 92 all of the police's efforts were acknowledged when the CPS accepted the case and a couple of years later in April 1994 Robert Black pleaded not guilty to 10 charges of kidnap, murder, attempted murder, attempted kidnap and preventing the lawful burial of a body. With the lack of forensic evidence linking him to the crimes Black's defence gunned for the prosecution but justice did prevail. In May 1994 Black was found guilty of three counts of murder, three counts of kidnapping, three counts of preventing the lawful burial of a body and one count of attempted abduction. He received 35 years in prison for each murder with the sentences to be served consecutively. It was said that Black was unbothered by the outcome of this trial and that he made a comment to investigating detectives that were present at the sentencing uh, which goes as follows. Tremendous, well done boys. What an absolute cock. In another trial in October 2011, Black was handed another life sentence for the murder of Jennifer Cardi. I mean, that's a long time afterwards, but they did ultimately end up linking all of these murders that we've gone into detail about to him and, and just it did prevail, as I said, but it took a long time. And also um, Jeanette Tate as well. Okay. Pretty yeah. sure that he's been officially linked to her, yeah. although never actually convicted. But I'm I'm pretty sure he's like the only, com- yeah. like the only suspect really in her case as well. Yeah, because quite often when that happens, the 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 CPS won't bring that forward to a trial, and Robert Black is dead now anyway. But yeah, they won't bring it because they're just kind of they they would say it's not in the public interest. I would probably disagree with that, but yeah, oftentimes they kind of say, well, yeah, it's likely that he's responsible, but we're not going to proceed with that because they're already in prison or dead. 
In interviews, Black always spoke in a hypothetical manner. When he was questioned about these disappearances and these murders, he always steered the blame away from himself, but went into some detail about what he thought might have happened. And that really is truly narcissistic behaviour, because I feel like he wants to revel in it, and talk about it, and feel that, and see the shock on people's faces, but equally he's not going to admit to doing it. Although Black was convicted of these four murders, it's suspected that he is linked to at least 14 further child murders and disappearances across the UK, Ireland and Europe. It could, could, as I said, be a lot more. Unfortunately, there was a lack of evidence to try Black for those 14 specific cases, and one of them must be the, the name that you mentioned, Bethan. While serving his sentence in HMP Wakefield, Black was viciously assaulted by two inmates who scalded him with boiling sugar water before stabbing him in the back and neck with a homemade weapon, a shank. They also bludgeoned him with a table leg and Chloe says here, Sadly, Black survived this attack and was moved to a different prison to serve out the rest of his sentence where he later died in 2016 of a heart attack. She says he was cremated and his ashes were scattered into the sea. No family or friends were noted to have attended his cremation. No one longed for him. And he ultimately died without love and alone, which is what he deserved, in my opinion. Chloe goes on to say, I've tried to steer my opinion out of the story, but it has cropped up there a few times. My true opinion is too explicit to share with fellow listeners on a public platform, but I imagine the majority of us are in agreement that this man was a piece of human shit. The product of violence and abuse bears no weight when you take a moment to remember that this man had a choice. He could have chosen to not murder, rape and kidnap innocent children. Instead, he destroyed the lives of families across the nation to feed his own perverse desires without any logical thought. And yeah, I think Chloe sums it up brilliantly there. Yeah, agreed there. Definitely agree with you there. He had a choice, whether or not that would be a very difficult choice for him to make because yeah. it's not, it's not, um, you know, his his sexual desires and urges are something that he cannot make a decision around. He can't choose not to be a paedophile. That is, we've talked about this before. It's It's what you then decide to do off the back of that. And he chose to go and abuse children. You know, we talked, we've talked recently about David Fuller because of the TV programme again. And yes, that might be your sexual desire, but you make the conscious decision to go and either kill or to work somewhere where you have access to those dead bodies. Whereas we looked at the cannibal case recently, consent was such a big part of that. He had those fantasies for what, 40 years? Was it 30 or 40 years? I can't remember how old he was for definite. But until somebody specifically said to him yes I want to do all these things and agreed and was fully on board he didn't go around I'm I've really struggled with that case because it, it was kind of like he didn't do this to people who weren't willing yeah but then yeah. even he at the end by the end was kind of saying actually people shouldn't do what I did but but in a case like this he has the choice not to do anything about his creepy horrible sexual desires absolutely thank you so much chloe and thank you everyone for joining us and listening yeah thank you i would i just want to take a couple of moments at the end just to mention because i've worked out who you were talking about mark when you laughed at smelly oh have you what was his name what was it smelly Smelly bobby Bobby tulip Tulip. yeah right so 
In our Patreon bonus episode number 38, we looked at Kenneth McDuff. Right. So, the funny one was his mum. His mum was called Pistol Packing Mama McDuff. Oh, God, yeah. And so basically there was Kenneth McDuff and his older brother as well. um, And his older brother, Lenny. And then Lenny called himself... Rough, tough Lonnie McDuff. Oh, no, not Lonnie, sorry. Not Lenny, Lonnie. Lonnie. Lonnie called himself Rough, tough Lonnie McDuff. But one of the anecdotes was he had a speech impediment, so it sounded like Rough, tough Lonnie McDuff. I remember that. And he couldn't quite say it properly. But even still, he was so vicious and violent and horrendous that nobody took the mick out of him, even though, first of all, you're giving yourself a stupid nickname and you say it in a way that to children is funny nobody still took the piss so i reckon that's what you were thinking of i think it, i think it was and Kenneth also McDuff I think, from the 1960s horrible horrible guy horrible guy i also think i said this at the time that you're not allowed to give yourself a nickname so he's also a dick for doing yes, that because you do not give yourself if, a nickname if you're the sort of person you say oh i'm crazy oh i'm so kooky yeah then go you're fuck not. yourself yeah Um, So on that note, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to Chloe for researching and writing the episode. Don't forget to check out Patreon if you're able to support us and you want to. Just head to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we'll be back next week for another episode. So we will see you there. Bye. Bye. Bye.